Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode of Ladies Night. I'm very excited about this episode because I am talking to one of the stars of what I think is one of the best movies of 2021. It's Martha Plimpton from Mass. Hello. Good to see you. And yet again, congratulations. Thank you. It's good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you on this show because we get to play some games. We get to revisit your incredible filmography and your stage work. It's going to be a good time. But first thing we do is we got to use this dice tower behind me. So I've got eight questions here. I roll the die three times. And whatever three things that I roll for you, that's where we're starting at least. Okay. First one is a number seven. This one's called movie skills. If you could learn a new skill or about a different profession through a role, what would it be? Oh, boy. Wow. That's good. That's a good one. Um, So that's a tough one. Um, I've always wanted to do a Western. And I, I already know how to ride horses, but I'd like to be an expert at riding horses and be in a be in a really cool western i would like to see that happen yeah i got roll number two for you okay we're going with a five this time uh we call this one must-haves what is something that you can't be without when you're on set whether it's your sides your notes a certain snack something to pass the time between scenes you name it Uh, my water bottle a water bottle Constantly. Got to have that water. Got to hydrate. Got to keep hydrated. You're way smarter than I am. I'm the I'm the coffee cup clutcher. Oh, boy. Yeah. No, too much coffee. Too much coffee is not a good idea. I know from experience. All right. Yeah. One more roll for you. Mm-hmm. Going with a two for our last one. Number two is more TV, please. If you could guest star on the show of your choice, what show would you pick and why? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Oh, probably I would have liked to be on either The Wire. Uh, I would have loved to have been on The Wire playing like, I don't know, a, a crooked cop or something or um, and uh, or either that or All in the Family. I'd like to play like Archie Bunker's like long lost niece or something who's like, you know, too, you know, a little too much like Archie, Archie Bunker because he's one of my favorite characters. All right, let's get into the meat of it. Going back to the early, early days with a twofold question for you here. So first, do you remember the moment when you first decided you wanted to be an actor? And then do you remember when it first clicked that you needed to be an actor? As in when a performance just felt so right and you know that you needed to have that feeling again? Well, um, that's a tough one for me to answer because I've been doing this since I was eight years old. Um, so I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I get, I don't know if I, if I ever had that moment, the first one that you, that you ask about. Um, I think when I was doing a play, um, I think it was 29. Um, when I was doing Hedda Gabler, uh, with Doug Hughes, the director, um, and we were, we were in, uh, we were in, um, Steppenwolf. We were at Steppenwolf and also at New Haven. That's when I think I started to real, I started to actually have fun. Um, so it took about, about 20 years, uh, 21 years to start having fun. But that's when I, re- that's when I started to really, um, enjoy it. 
uh, and yeah. Can I ask what what quality of that production paved the way to having that fun? Uh, the outfits, the outfits. No, I mean you know that just, but also the way I think the way Doug directed. Um, he he's one of my favorite directors to this day. Um, he just was so rigorous and yet so fun and so um, specific and. Uh, you know, he just made, he just made it feel like, like a, like a, uh, like a worthy vocation. And, um, and I, and I don't know if I ever had thought about it really quite that way up until then. Like that. All right. You know, one of the places we have to start with your filmography is of course Goonies. So it is often referred to as a breakout movie for you, but did it feel that way to you when that movie came out? Did many things change in your career? No, no. Um, uh, I mean, making it was obviously, you know, uh, a wonderful, incredible experience. And, you know, working with uh, Dick Donner was just so incredibly fun and uh, rest his soul. We all miss him enormously. He was just a kind and burly father figure. And he was a loving and lovely man and loud and brash and, you know, a, just a, a riot. Um, working with Steven as well. I mean, it was a, a wonderful dream come true. And all of those experiences that we had on that film were a dream come true. But when the film came out, uh, it wasn't initially a huge hit. Um, and it really, uh, it, it, it came out at, at around the time of the advent of, of home video. And uh, around the time when cable was becoming more and more ubiquitous. So that's where the film really found um, its following. Um, and so it was a, you know, a sort of a long evolution you know, from the film it was to being this sort of cult, not even cult anymore. I mean, every, you know, everybody, everybody's seen this movie and everyone shows their kids this movie now, you know what I mean? And now people are showing their grandkids this movie. Um, you know what I mean? So it, it's been a wonderful evolution over the years that certainly no one ever expected, you know? So that's, you know, pretty great. Could my question then apply to almost a delayed reaction where all of a sudden new opportunities start coming your way well after release because so many people just joined that kind of cult following that the movie built up? I, I don't think so. I don't think I ever got a job because of the Goonies. But I, I got, I mean, I've gotten many, I've had many wonderful other experiences because of it, but, but I don't think it ever got me any work. If you had to pick any credit on your filmography from the earlier years that maybe had that effect on your career, what would it be? Jeez, um, probably Parenthood or Mosquito Coast or, you know, um, Running on Empty. Running on Empty was, a, you know, a real a wonderful movie. I mean, but, but at the time, you know, it was in the 80s, there wasn't that much going for character actresses of my age so you know each job that came up was kind of a, a stroke of luck bringing up 
parenthood makes me want to ask you about working with that ensemble. So at that point, you had already had some experience, but all of a sudden you're on set acting opposite. I mean, just like some of the greatest out there. So what is something that you saw one of those, you know, acting greats or more veteran performers at the time do that you put in your back pocket and said, I want to apply that on a future project myself? You know, there, there wasn't too much of that. It was, it was, uh, it was really a, a wonderful kind of party, that film. Um, you know, I, I didn't see anyone sort of go off and concentrate or, you know, pull any tricks out of a hat. Um, I just saw professionalism and kindness and warmth um, from everyone. Uh, and, you know, Ron Howard creates that sort of environment on his sets. And, um, you know, so people were just, you know, lovely and happy to be there and, you know, joyful. And, um, you know, I think that's what I took away from it, that, that, you know, one should be, one should have a good time, you know, know your lines. And, uh, of course it was nerve wracking, um, uh, being around some of those people. And I was starstruck a little bit. I won't, I won't lie. Um, but, um, yeah, just, it was, uh. It, it wasn't, it was like, it was just, you know, you, 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 you just pick up this sort of general sense of being happy to be there, feeling lucky to be there. Dare I say, maybe those are some of the more important lessons to learn than picking up tips and tricks about your craft. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's get into some TV stuff now. So mm-hmm. I know you went on to appear in many more shows beyond this one, but as someone who grew up a little obsessed with ER, I have to ask about yeah. that one first. Actually, I think that might have been your very first um, guest appearance on a big TV show, if I remember correctly. But it, Well, actually, Family Ties was my first guest spot on a TV show. Okay. First, that was first. I think this was second. And this was like a big multiple episode arc here. So what was it like stepping onto a set like that? That was like kind of a a well-oiled machine where you had to adjust to the way that they like to work to create that show. It was pretty nerve wracking. I remember I was so nervous, actually. I was playing a waitress and I remember I, and we had a rehearsal in this sort of diner set and uh, I spilled an entire glass of orange juice all over Juliana Margulies's beautiful camel hair coat. Um, <laughs> and that was humiliating and embarrassing. Um, uh, so it was a little nerve wracking to, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it turned out fine. I imagine, you know, she had a wardrobe team there to take her coat to the cleaners. So, and then ultimately, you got to to reunite on The Good Wife. So maybe, yeah, maybe that connected the dots in a really strong way and made a big yeah. impact on her. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Does that actually happen? Is it just a coincidence that you had that arc that her character on ER was heavily involved in, and then you reunite on The Good Wife, or is it just kind of a coincidence that you kind of you kind of work together again in the future? I think it's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, you know she she probably was like, hey, great idea, you know, um, because she was a I believe she was an executive producer on on The Good Wife. Um, um, but I think uh, largely it's it's coincidence, yeah. All right. To open it up to all of those TV guest appearances now, which one would you say taught you the most about what you wanted to do when you got to lead a show of your own with Raising Hope? Oh, boy. You know what? Raising Hope was such a unique experience. It was my first time as a series regular. And Greg Garcia is a totally unique kind of 
showrunner and show creator. He's unlike anyone else. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a completely, it was a total, uh, joy and it was just fun. And it also saved me from abject poverty, um, and came at a time when I was really quite broke. And so I was just so incredibly happy to be there. Um, and then to be also having so much fun and to be working with Garrett Dillahunt, who I immediately clicked with and who was just a dream to work with. Um, uh, you know, that was, I mean, you know, in a funny way, it was, it was a little bit like working on a play. I mean, we just had this automatic family, you know what I mean? And, uh, and you just dove right in, you know? Um, it was really, it was life-changing and really wonderful. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm working with them again right here in Pittsburgh. So something must've gone right. Speaking, speaking of Garrett, I feel like he's, he's probably one of the biggest unsung heroes in this industry. I feel like he's so good in everything and we still don't give him the full credit that he deserves for how much he stands out and everything he's in. He, he literally can do anything, literally anything. Um, and does all the time. I have to touch on the end of Raising Hope. I was wondering how you felt when that came to an end. Was it the kind of situation where it came as a shock or did it kind of feel like it was coming after Greg had left the production? Yeah, it kind of felt like it was coming after Greg left. Um, I think he didn't feel supported by the network and, um, uh, and he knew that we were making a really fantastic show. Um, and the fact that he, the, the network didn't seem to be behind it, um, just got to be exhausting for him. And, you know, I think Greg does things because he wants to have fun. And the minute he's not having fun, you know, he doesn't care. He, he'll late, you know? Um, and so it felt right to him, although very difficult for him to leave. Um, but he just, you know, he, he was, I think he was done dealing with, uh, with the network at that point. Um, and so I think when, when, uh, when we did do our final season, I think we, we kind of did feel like it would be our last season. Um, although, you know, Mike Mariano who took over for him was a great, and is a great guy. Um, we did feel like, you know, it'll probably be over. And so our last episode was really kind of emotional and, you know, we had Kenny Loggins come in and I mean, it was really kind of, you know, it's a lot for us, it was, you know, um, and, and, you know, I was sad, but I also felt like, look, if this is a, if this is the way it's going to end, it's ending on a great note. And I'm really, really proud of it. And I have no regrets about any of it. I feel like it was an absolutely fantastic show. People still watch it. People still tell me that they're watching, you know, they love it. And, uh, you know, what more can you ask for really? Well, for anyone out there who has not watched it, it is streaming in full on Hulu right now. And and it's brilliant. It's really brilliant. And of course, it's Cloris is, Cloris is brilliant, too. I mean, you know. The show almost derailed all of my prep for this episode. I did rewatch a whole bunch of your films, but then oh. I found it on Hulu and I pushed play and I just like, I couldn't stop. That's great. That's great. It's too too easy to binge there. I did want to take a moment to highlight your theater work here, too. So I was just wondering how you went about incorporating that in your career. And it just seems like 
that was done the most from like the mid 2000s where you had done theater before that, but there was just so much there. And of course you can't ignore the Tony nomination. So was that a period in your career where maybe you deliberately wanted to put more time and focus into that kind of performance? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, uh, I, I worked in regional theater, you know, all through the late eighties and nineties um, and I joined the Steppenwolf Company in 1998. I had done another play there about two years earlier. Um, uh, so I, I was consistently, you know, working in the theater. Um, uh, yeah, from about 88, 89 on. Um, but uh, yes, you are correct. There just wasn't uh, very much uh, film or TV work, I suppose. And I did want to concentrate on the theater and I did want to do more plays. And, um, so yeah, so I did. And then, um, uh, I did, uh, I made my Broadway debut, uh, I think in 2001 or two, I can't, 2004, maybe can't quite remember. Um, um, and then, uh, and yeah, and just consistently tried to work there and, and then did The Coast of Utopia, which uh, was an absolutely amazing, uh, you know, life altering experience with so many people who are still part of my life um, and they will never be rid of me. Um, and uh, that just really was like... Uh, just an artistic and uh, emotional um, highlight, a height that I don't think I'll ever repeat, really. Um, so yeah, yeah, that that was uh, yeah, that was quite a time, and uh, and I'm still doing plays. You know, I still I did uh, um, Sweat Lynn Nottage's play in England at the Donmar Warehouse and the West End. Subsequently, about two years ago. And uh, I, I hope to return uh, and I hope to do more. Oh, everything's opening back up now. So I've got high hopes there's going to be, there's definitely going to be a path that leads you to that soon. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. So many follow-ups to that. Maybe, maybe first, what is something that you get out of performing on stage that you don't get out of performing for the camera and vice versa? Well, you know, the, the, the communal aspect of it, you know, the, the company aspect of it, the ensemble aspect of it is really great. The rehearsal process is really wonderful. Um, um, the physical work that you do is really invigorating and really immediate and feels very, um, just very alive and very present and, you know, and of course, having the audience there um, it obviously adds a whole other level of terror, for one, um, <laughs> which is also invigorating um, uh, in its own way. But also just that, you know, you're telling stories and that you're all in this room together in the dark, um, experiencing this moment in time, you know, all at once um you know it's just a wonderful thing hopefully it's a wonderful thing you know it, it sometimes it's not sometimes it's a real slog um you know but most of the time 
it's really wonderful. And, um, and when it ends, it can be really, really painful. You know, it's like, uh, you're, you know, it's like a, you're losing a limb or something like that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to think, and I, I hope I am, uh, I like to stay very close with the people that I work with in the theater. And I think it's like a wonderful community, you know, it's a wonderful sort of world of people who are, um, sort of all kind of know, they all kind of share in this, uh, you know, sort of experience that can't really be duplicated any other way. Do you think that getting the Tony nominations opened any doors for you in film and television? Because if I have the years right, those nominations came right before Raising Hope. So is there any crossover in terms of, you know, different sectors of the industry like that? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I know that I wasn't uh, Greg's initial first choice for Raising Hope, or at least I wasn't in his mind. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then somehow I was, I don't know if that's because of the Tony nomination or not. I, I don't think it was, I don't think Greg really follows the Tony awards very much, but maybe, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not sure. That's what a show like this is for, to make sure everyone out there is aware of everything you've accomplished in so many different formats. Because I feel like it's thank you. It's so easy to compartmentalize. Like I usually live in a movie bubble, but doing shows and conversations like this makes sure that I'm aware of all the different capacities that someone can excel at. Thank you. All right. I wanted to bring up something that I was reading that you wrote in a Q&A on The Guardian that caught my mind. I think it was like a, it was a Q&A with the commenters and someone had asked you what your dream role was. And you said that you couldn't think of a particular role that you wanted to play, but you said that there were a whole bunch of men's roles that you wish that you could do. So do you have an example of maybe a specific one that you'd want to play or even just a, like a more general quality that is often given to male characters that you would have liked to have tackled? I'd like to, I'd like to play some of Shakespeare's men. I think they're wonderful. Um, and largely because I've now grown too old to play most of Shakespeare's women. Um, I'd like to play some of the men. Um, but also I think that the second part of your question is very interesting because I think it, it speaks to sort of a larger, um, problem uh in you know the in, in the narratives and in, in the way we tell stories generally um uh in that we don't really ascribe uh too many qualities of ambivalence um or um pride or um vengeance. Uh, we don't really do, we don't really write those stories a lot for women. Um, and, um, we're getting better at it and we're seeing more of them and that's great. I don't want to say they're not, they don't exist. I think they truly do. Um, but I think historically, you know, we, we've been challenged in that way. Um, and so I think, you know, in the, in the intervening two years since I wrote that, or since I did that interview, uh, I think my opinion slightly changed, you know, um, uh, not that I don't w still want to play those roles. I do. Um, but, uh, I think there's more, uh, there's more now for women. You know what I mean? It's, 
it's getting richer. It's getting deeper. It's getting more nuanced, more exciting. Um, and particularly for uh, women my age, you know, um, uh, it's it's always been hard for girls in their 20s uh, and 30s. There's never really been a great range of character roles in that age range for women. And I, I'd like to see that change. I think it's, it is changing a little bit, but I think particularly for women 40, 50, 60, uh, there's lots of stuff out there right now, particularly because there's so much television, so much streaming, so much content out there um, that I think we're, we're, less, we're less and less afraid to tell stories we haven't told before, particularly about women of color. Um, you know, it's just very exciting time. Um, and it's a very rich time right now in the culture, um, for women, you know, just in general. I definitely see it. There's still work to be done in that sector, mm -hmm. but I like seeing the baby steps that I am right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get into mass. So this right here is Fran's feature directorial debut. What is one thing about the way that he works that you really appreciated and you can't wait for other actors out there to get to experience with his future films? That's a wonderful question. Um, I, I really appreciated his specificity and his preparedness. Um, and I knew that uh, I knew that he would have those qualities going in because the screenplay is so specific and so or it's very very authentic and organic feeling even though it's the product of countless hours of work um uh on Fran's part he really really worked very hard to get this thing right and you you can see it in the script you can, you read it in the script um and so I felt very confident uh, going in that he, that I, that we would be, that the cast would be uh, in really good hands. Um, that said, he also really trusted us. He really sort of was willing to share his script with us. He really allowed us to take ownership of it. Um, which not a lot of first-time directors who've written their own scripts are willing to do. Sometimes they can be really controlling and really kind of oppressive, you know, with their, you know, image of how it should be. Fran didn't have that. He had very clear idea of what he wanted and he had very clear boundaries, but the space he gave us to work within those boundaries was enormous. And uh, felt really unusual. He really gave us that movie. You know what I mean? It was an incredible gift. Uh, and one that not a lot of directors are able to give their actors. Um, so that's one thing I, I'm really, I think that any actor would be just would love to experience. I love that quality in his work. I definitely yes. think you see it shine through quite a bit. Yeah. So shifting to the ensemble now, I was reading something that Anne had said in the production notes on this that kind of caught my eye, that there were occasions when the four of you didn't agree, where you had different points of view on certain mm -hmm. matters. So can you remember an example of when that happened and either... 
I guess, how you overcame that difference of opinions or maybe how it strengthened the work in the film? I don't, I don't know that I remember it the same way. Um, I remember us having discussions and I remember us having uh, differences of opinion or um, differences of approach. Um, but I don't ever remember being at loggerheads with anyone. And I don't remember, I, I don't feel that it ever, that there was ever a conflict. I think that if there was, it, we moved on very quickly. Um, a, because we didn't have time. Um, uh, and B, because we respected one another and we trusted one another enormously. So um, I, I'm not sure that I would, and I'm not entirely sure that that's what Anne meant either, but if it is, I, I, I don't really, I didn't see it the same way. Um, I felt it just was part of the process. You know, it's just the natural, you know, reality of having four different personalities working on the same material. Um, you're going to have differences of opinion or differences of approach. Um, but in the end of all, you, you come together and you, you make it work and you, you do the work. Uh, and what's central to it all is this, the screenplay, is what Fran wants us to do. So, um, you know, you're not going to make that much of a deal out of it because, you know, the final word is ultimately with Fran, obviously. Really, if people didn't have differences of approach to their work, I imagine we'd wind up with a whole bunch of flat movies and shows out there. Yeah, exactly. It'd be pretty, pretty damn boring. So I usually don't like to repeat questions, but I kind of want the answer that you gave at the Q&A to like live in video form somewhere. But can you explain to the ladies night audience why this movie has no reaction shots? There's no like seeing a person say something and then cutting to a person's response, like face. It's, it's, um, a, 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 it's a natural thing that Fran, I think, has an aversion to. Um, and I think it's one of the things that makes this a, an extremely cinematic film. One of the most cinematic I think I've ever seen. He, he's, he's not a, he's not a static kind of guy and, and the film is not a static film. So, and I don't know if I can explain this properly, but, um, you know, when someone is talking and saying something important, he may be watching someone else. Um, there may be a silence in which you are seeing someone be silent and someone else may begin to talk and he may stay on the silent person. Um, I think in this way, he's able to um, create motion and he allows the actors to motivate that motion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. He's not letting, he's not, telling people what to think or what to feel with his, you know, overtly um, by using any cutaways, any, um, any flashbacks, any inserts, uh, any music. Um, very, there's very little music in this film. Um, it's all um, done in a very dynamic way using the performances. And so does that answer the question? I'm not sure it does. It but. does. It does. Because I, I feel like, um, you know, reaction shots when when people hear that term often comes with a, a fairly textbook definition of what yeah. that means. And that is not what you guys did on this movie whatsoever. No. And I think it ensures that 
I mean, literally every single frame of it has has weight and value and honesty to it. Yes, that's it's very true, and it's a great accomplishment, and it was terribly brave of Fran because there's a lot about this movie that many people just would not think could ever work on screen. And he's done something really masterful and really smart and, and again, really brave um, by allowing this film and allowing the actors to tell the story um, without all of that, without all of those textbook tools or, you know, tricks that filmmakers tend to believe they need. Well, we need to see, we need to see a, a cutaway. We need to see a, we need an insert on the pictures or we need a flashback. I mean, none of that. Um, uh, it's really quite an accomplishment and, and a, single, a singular one, I think. And it's a testament to Fran's integrity as a, as a movie maker that he's able to sort of silence all of that and put that all away and just make the film that he wanted to make. I could not agree more with all of that. And it just makes me incredibly eager to see his directing career continue. And I'm very, very confident it's going to continue and continue strong. So as we wind down ladies night, we play a second game. This is a, would you rather game? It's all filmmaking related. And some of them are very silly. Okay. I'm going to start with, would you rather only get one take or have to do a hundred takes? Oh, I think I'd rather have to do a hundred takes. Okay. Yeah. Only one is just too much pressure. Understandable. Bold, bold choice. I feel like yeah. that's where I would reach for the coffee cup, but yeah, I believe in you and your water bottle. Mm-hmm. Here's a silly one for you. Would you rather have to fake sneeze or fake vomit in a scene? Oh, fake sneeze. Obviously I've done both. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've done both. Fake sneezing is a lot more fun. And and easier on the easier on the voice. But you can do a convincing fake sneeze because that that's usually what people don't <laughs> choose because they don't. Yeah, I asked this question to the right person. I don't know how good that was, but I, I believe so. So far, I think it, it's you and Oprah that are my go-to's oh. for fake sneezing <laughs> at this point. I'm very impressed. All right, I think I know the answer to this one. But would you rather have no food or no caffeine at craft service? Uh, no caffeine. What what is your this isn't a would you rather question but what is your onset vice the the food at craft service Fritos. that Fritos Fritos to me it's a health food there's nothing in Fritos that isn't healthy corn salt corn oil what what's wrong with it it's all natural I love Fritos all right I'm all for that one so for this one you get cast as the lead in a spy movie. Would you rather play a spy who's more like James Bond or a spy who's more like Austin Powers? Oh, James Bond. It's not even a question. There's no comparison. James Bond, obviously. No. James Bond. I feel like this particular weekend is probably a good weekend to make Oh, that right. Choice. Oh, yeah, because it's coming out, too. Ooh, can't wait. One more here. Would you rather have to fake wake up in a scene or fake drive in a scene oh fake waking up is hard people who do that well i really admire it that's 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 when i study because fake waking up is hard fake driving is fine fake driving you don't have to do anything you just sit there <laughs> just you don't don't move your hands like this and yeah, don't look don't, to the as side long as you're not doing me. this you know just keep your hands on the wheel and it's those people who like spend like the whole scene looking here that I'm like, what are you, 
Look out the window. Those moments give me such anxiety. Yeah, they give me such anxiety too. I'm, I'm right there with you. So we always end ladies night with the same two mm-hmm. questions. First one is, can you name someone who you think is changing this industry for the better? Oh my gosh, I can name a thousand trillion people. I'll take as many as we can squeeze into a couple minutes. I mean, Ava DuVernay, Issa Rae, um, uh, Aquafina, um, uh, uh, gosh, I mean, there's a million, a million. Who, who else? Um, um, uh, even, I mean, a million. My friend Ashley Nicole Black, the women who do a black lady sketch show. Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, there's so many people that I admire that I think are doing incredible work. Reese Witherspoon is changing, you know, the way people think about women in leadership roles in in, in this business. Um, my friend Lynette Linton, who runs the Bush Theater in London, is an incredible young woman who's changing the way theater is made. Um, um, my friend Kate Waters, who's a fight director in London, is an incredible changing things in that area profoundly. Um, so many. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn Nottage, you know, who's writing plays and, you know, changing the way Broadway thinks about, you know, how to make theater, who to go to, whose stories need to be told. Um, Lisa McNulty, all these people. Yeah. Michaela Cole. I mean, I, it just goes on. Ken, you can't stop. Yeah. I get it. So the last question on Ladies Night is a little heavy. You could take it in a lighter direction if okay. you prefer. But what is the biggest fear you've ever had that you've actually managed to overcome? Oh, my goodness. I did go through a period of, of stage fright um, uh, a few years back. Um, and I think I'm past that now. Um, I think. Um, uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I have too many of those kinds of fears, to be honest. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to sound glib or anything. I just don't know if I have those kinds of, I mean, I, I have a fear of heights now that I've developed in my, in my older, in middle age, which is odd. I never used to have a fear of heights. And now I'm like, what's that about? Like when you develop a fear when you, later in life, what is that about? I don't even know. I'm trying to think if I've developed anything later on, but it's yeah. still the same thing as when I was a child. It's just bees in the dentist. You shouldn't don't be afraid of bees. Bees are marvelous. They don't they don't they don't want to sting you. So someone recently told me that I should feel safe because it's a high pitch noise that they make when they're angry, but if it's a lower pitch, then you're safe around them and they're not going to yeah. sting. But like I can't get close enough to a bee to actually listen to the noise it's making. So well, I don't know. What that's you gotta you gotta me. love the bees. They keep us they keep us in food. I know. Deep down yeah. I do know that. All right, Martha, I have to let you go. Thank you. Again, huge, huge, huge congratulations on Mass. Thank I can you. guarantee you I will not stop talking about this movie in the months to come. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with us on Ladies Night and sharing some of your experience. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.